this week's episode of the Founder and the Force Multiplier podcast, where we explore how founders and leaders work together with their right-hand partners to turn ideas into action and build wildly successful businesses. Today, Adam joins me for a special episode with Bonnie Lowe Craman. Bonnie is one of us. For 25 years, Bonnie Lowe Craman worked as the personal assistant to Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis in Lewis Zorick. From there, she became a sought-after author and speaker on workplace issues. Her new book, Staff Matters, People-Focused Solutions for the Ultimate New Workplace, is a revolutionary and thoughtful approach to bridging the gap between all staff in the post-pandemic world. Through her writing, workshops, and speaking engagements, Bonnie strives to bring the voice of the staff to the forefront to create an ultimate new workplace for our children and grandchildren, the staff of the future. Adam and I had such a great time talking with Bonnie about how the pandemic changed work, psychological safety, and building the ultimate workplace. Bonnie also shared some awesome real staff stories, and we got to talk about the research in her new book, Staff Matters. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I think you will, then be sure to let us know in all the usual places, such as leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode. All right. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for joining uh, me and Adam today. We've got Adam on the podcast as well, which is not always um, the case, but today he's here for you. Um, And we're so excited to have you here. I know your book is launching on February 28th. It is. It's such a joy to be here with both of you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's just dive right in and talk about Staff Matters. Um, Why did you write that book uh, and why now and what impact do you hope it has? Right. Uh, Staff Matters, the truth is it's been in the works for more than seven years. Uh, As I've traveled the world teaching and speaking and being in rooms, frankly, of mostly women, the executive assistants of the world who are trying very hard to support their leaders, I became keenly aware of how much was going unsaid in the workplace, how much leaders were not privy to, in part because of fear. Um, And I kept hearing again and again, um, assistants saying things like, you know, Bonnie, I do see and hear everything. But I can't say about, I can't speak up about the problems that I see because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid I'm going to be labeled a troublemaker. I'm afraid I'm not going to be liked. And this has been so prevalent that I thought, well, somebody has to say this. Somebody has to reveal what's really going on. And so I decided to interview for the book leaders, assistants, HR professionals and recruiters in order to do this, in order to bring everybody together to hopefully offer some empathy um, and and thinking that there's real value in having HR, for example, read directly from what assistants feel and think Mm -hmm. and what leaders have to say and what recruiters, what their point of view is on all of this. You know, I was able to ask questions like, what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? What do people not know about your job that, that you would want them to know? And let me tell you, Hallie and Adam, they told me in very clear detail. You said you talk, sorry, you said you, uh, seven years ago, you kind of been in the works before that, were you um, walk 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 me through your your thinking there? Was it more just were you just unaware of it? Was it starting to sneak in? Um, walk walk me through that kind of mental. That's that's a really interesting question. Um, it had been brewing. 
for quite a while before that, but I, I began like really creating, collecting material because it, it, the outline of what it needed to be started really getting clear. Um, it, it happened as a result of, at this point, I, and I'm sure you've been in many more, but I've been in 13 countries and the commonality, the universality of the stories that I was hearing, it didn't really matter whether I was in Dubai or London or St. Louis, Missouri, where I kept hearing the same themes, Adam. And I, I realized I could spend the rest of my career just complaining about these things or just being frustrated by the disconnects that was ha were happening in the workplace. Or I thought, well, let me just try. Let me just, you know, on my huge dining room table, I just started putting piles of subjects and which turned into those were going to be the chapters. So it really happened over time. Pandemic is the thing that, mm -hmm. that fast-tracked it. Because I, at first I was kicking myself that the book didn't come out prior to the pandemic. Then I realized it was a blessing because then I was able to update it and make it very timely. So there's a chapter called, you know, uh, the effect of the pandemic on the workplace, et cetera. So it's really been quite a journey to get to this place. We're talking now 21 chapters at almost 400 pages. So mm -hmm. it's- I want to go back and put a pin in the um, the effect on the on the workforce from uh, the pandemic. But before we do, was there a particular story or a particular um, instance that you heard that just turned you in a different direction to start wanting to make this happen? Did somebody share something with you that said, you know what, like in that moment, like it shifted? Yes, that's I love these questions, Adam. I was at a conference and one of the segments that I really enjoy doing is moderating a conversation between a leader and their executive assistant, not unlike the two of you. And after the, the session was over and it was great and the audience got a lot out of it, I said, to, I had a conversation with the leader, with the CEO, and I was talking about the reluctance of staff to speak up out of fear, as I mentioned earlier. And he looked me straight in the face and he said, you know what, Bonnie, if no one is telling me there's a problem, I think there is none. And that knocked me out. I it, was, That's a <laughs> it was a revelation uh, because I realized he wasn't alone in that thought. And what I'm very aware of is that there's a lot that's being unsaid in the workplace and, and that leaders, the best leaders need to listen to the silence and, you know, the quiet parts out loud, you know, why is there a, you know, a mass exodus in one of the departments at a company and it could be about bullying or sexual harassment or, you know what I mean? These toxic behaviors that people are really reluctant to talk about. And, and what is absolutely true is that in with the remote and virtual world, it's gotten even more difficult to have those difficult conversations. Um, there have been a number of those kind of aha moments, but that one from the leader, um, you know, there was a seasoned assistant in our class um, in Hawaii, actually, and 
I do a, an exercise called the two minute lesson where assistants are just asked to teach us something for two minutes. And she told the story to how she's been working for 30 years as an assistant. And that over the years, she happens to be really voluptuous and she has gotten hit on and diminished and commented upon over the years as something very common that's happened to her, which has eaten away at her confidence. Mm. And what she told us is that over the years, she imagined that she was wearing an invisible backpack. And in that backpack, every single day, she carried around a big, heavy rock. And she called it her rock of insignificance. Mm. Oh, Adam. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house when this woman was looking at us, telling us that she was wearing her rock, carrying around that rock of mm-hmm. insignificance. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't make this stuff up. And too many women and men, some men as well, but so many women suffer from a lack of confidence. And it's those kinds of circumstances that explain why. Do you think that in your experience and the research you've done, that when you hear a comment like, if there's no, if I don't, nobody tells me there's a problem, there is no problem. Do you think that is a lack of um, somebody willing or wanting to see the, the actual outcome of the company? Or do you think it's more of like, I, there's more of like a hubris that like, there isn't actually a problem and they're just pretending that there isn't, is it, or is it more of like the, the leader actually is very insecure. And if there is a problem, in the company it makes them feel insignificant that, that the company isn't being run or this perfect organization. And I think a lot of there's a, this pressure on CEOs in particular to have this perfectly unflawed organization. That's awesome all the time. Mm. That really doesn't exist in the real world. And so I wonder if how much of that is like the individual CEO or is there outside pressure pushing on them to behave in a way that was just very um, not in alignment with, uh, with, with reality. What I believe about that in that case, I believe the the CEO was absolutely sincere and it, and essentially he was saying to me, so Bonnie, I'm challenging my people. If they have something to say to me, they need to come to me. And so I went on to say to him, so when your people have something They need to be the messenger and to say things that you might not want to hear. Do you want to hear them? And he said, a hundred percent. Yes. And that's when we had the opportunity to say, well, then that's, then that may mean that we need to explore having psychological safety. People need to be safe, feel safe to come to you to reveal there's a problem. People in general, staff fears backlash and repercussions and, you know, being that proverbial messenger, Mm -hmm. you know, Adam, I think CEOs, my hope is that in the book, I have, I offer a real uh, shining light on how difficult it is to be in your position and be a leader. There's so many pressures. um, And I, I think this particular CEO was wanting to put the burden on the staff without necessarily doing a whole lot of 
emotional intelligent work. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I've heard from other leaders who, who, when I ask them, how involved do they get with the staff? Um, And many CEOs shared that they rely on their, on their managers, on their C-suite executives to let them know what's happening below them and that the CEO doesn't have time for it and that they're trusting their direct reports to let them know what's really happening on the ground level. And that was frightening to me because I believe that they're missing out on a great deal. Does it take time? And, and is it a is it an organizational challenge to do that? A hundred percent. But I'm sure you know Hubert Jolie, who wrote the book, The Heart of Business from, you know, he now teaches at Harvard, but yeah. he was the former CEO of Best Buy. And he did what I just said. He went onto the selling floor and started hanging out with people selling the computers and the cameras and things like that. And he learned a whole lot that way. Now, can a CEO visit with every single staffer? Of course not. But Adam, I really think we can do better. What would you suggest as as a mechanism or a technique for a leader or a CEO, because it really is going to be CEO or divisional leader, right? Or CC executive yep. to um, maybe if they're saying, hey, I'm sincere about this, but maybe I recognize that I haven't done everything that I could. What's the first thing that you would have them do? First thing I would have them do is consult with their executive assistant, actually, mm-hmm. to Say, literally say, Hallie, if you see something or you believe there's something I should know about what you're, what's going on at our company, I want you to tell me. And it, it, this can't be third-hand or second-hand information. This has got to be something that if you see a, a problem brewing, if you notice something in a meeting, you know, you're sitting there as my strategic business partner, mm-hmm. I want to know about it. And it, it, you're not going to get, you know, I may not always agree with what you're going to say, but I need you to be my eyes and ears. CEO, everyone fear, most everyone fears talking to the CEO, but I'm telling you, and Adam, you probably know this, the staff, most all the staff feels a whole lot safer talking mm-hmm. to, to Hallie. Now I know she's not officially your assistant, the person yeah. who is your assistant In a room of assistants, I don't care where I am, I say to them, is it true that people will say things to you that they would never say to your leader? And look at Hallie, she's nodding her, that's a big fat yes, right? definitely. And I knew this, I worked for 25 years with the actress Olympia Dukakis. I knew people were, they were saying a lot to me and Olympia knew it. So Olympia so the first thing a leader needs to do is connect with some key people in the organization. Not everybody, but the assistant is a great one. Mm-hmm. Somebody like your people who've been at the company for 25 years, it really does pay to check in with them and say, I, I, to make it safe to say what they see and that I want you to have an open line of communication with me, the CEO, because I can't be everywhere, but I want to know. I want to know. And in my book, staff says that, like, what do you, what do you wish the CEO would know? 
talk to us once in a while. Mm-hmm. When, when the pandemic hit, the, the leaders who had the most stable companies, were, and I heard this from the assistants, are the ones who held regular town halls to be transparent and accountable and and talk to their people and keep an open door because these leaders knew that there there was a great deal of uncertainty and stress. And and it's not that the CEO has all the answers. CEOs and top leaders don't have to have all the answers. They just need to communicate with their people because one of the worst things, I don't know if in your lives, if this has ever happened, but the worry and the anxiety that comes from being in the dark, being Mm -hmm. not being told, you know, am I going to get laid off? Is everybody going to lose their health insurance? Is everybody going to have to take a pay cut? Like the pandemic caused anxiety, such a high magnitude that the leaders who had the most stable staffs were the ones who were actually talking to them on a regular basis. Yeah. What do you think? I I, uh, fully support that viewpoint because I even have a CFO right now that uh, from one of our organizations who is like, yeah, I know that I can talk to you, Adam, but it's easier for me to talk to Hallie. And I know Hallie's going to tell you what it is anyway. So it's easier for me to go ahead and do that and then get that information to you anyways. Um, Because I do think people, even though like, even as a leader, even if you're, I feel, and I'm certainly could always work on it, that I'm a pretty uh, down the earth, open CEO that people can speak to me and, and, and tell me what they are. And, and some of them do, but I also understand the dynamics that I'm still somebody's boss. So that if it's easier to talk to Hallie, we actually encourage that with actually formal communication of like, Hey, if you ever have anything, understand when you tell it to Hallie, it's going to be a vault except for Adam. And so the, everyone knows that like whatever you tell Hallie is, is going to be shared. So people are aware of that unless it's a mm-hmm. issue or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they'll, they'll get it and they'll grab it. Just last week, we, I taught a three-day immersion course and there were some of our partners that were in it. And, you know, that night Hallie sends out like, of course, there's a lot of people around here. Here's the six things of feedback that we have for you. Of course, I mean, none of them, it was a great event, but none of them were like positive towards me. They're like, here's some feedback, some from the people that we could be doing better in the organization that I got the chance to hear it. And so um, just a real life example. And and we went through each one of those points to say, great, how can we do this? How can we address it? Um, You know, which ones are priority? Which ones do I need to tackle? And we make adjustments based on that. And I think, if you're willing as a, as a CEO or any leader of an organization, willing to come in there, never wanting to be right, but wanting to be right for the organization, mm-hmm. I think you're being willing to be hearing the conversation. I'm not saying it's not going to hurt because there's going to be some things you hear and they're going to, you can't, then if, if it hits you, then it hits you. You can't stop it from feeling emotion, but you can go, you can recognize that it hurts for a second and it's, you've asked for it. It kind of makes you squeeze a little bit. Let me let me surrender to that. And then let's figure out a, a game plan of how we can use this information to better the whole organization. Right. right. And that, that takes encouragement. And good for you, Adam, for in, uh, being aware of that dynamic and being open to the feedback that's coming your way. I mean, that just tells me a lot about you. And, and probably you have a lot of longevity on your team because people mm-hmm. tend to stick with leaders who behave like that, that they want to know that sure, there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be changes that are going to happen. But what they're yearning for is to be treated respectfully Mm -hmm. by being told information about what's going on with the company. And and, uh, that's what they're wanting, even more than money. 
what I observe, you know, mm-hmm. you could throw money at some staff, but it, what matters more is that they're treated like a human being. Yeah. Uh, I mean, truly, they, they right. say that I don't want to be a, nobody wants to feel like they're a number or that or that, or it doesn't that, that they just don't matter. That's really mm-hmm. what people want to know that what they're doing is contributing and matter. You know, we wrote in the book um, in ours that like I wrote, like how they used to piss me off when she come in there. And really like what I really mean by that is she would challenge my thinking because as a CEO, you're rewarded for your vision and kind of drive and kind of pushing the organization forward. Yep. And you kind of see it so clearly in your head. And then when somebody stops you and says, have you thought about this? I don't think this is going to work. It's almost like CEOs don't want to hear that because they're so you're so focused on I got to bring this whole thing out there, but it ends up um, if you can actually stop for a second and go. It really what what people are doing is they're challenging your own thinking, and you have to start being open to you being wrong and not being right. And I think yeah. that if you go into every situation being like I'm part right, I'm part wrong, and let's go figure out where I'm wrong first, so that we can actually move forward with everybody as fast yes. as we can. Well, that reminds me of. Uh, Hallie, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Chapter four is called Ask First. And I hear you talking about this, Adam. Mm -hmm. And what I would say to all leaders is bring your Hallie's into the process sooner Mm -hmm. so that she's privy to the meeting where you're having that brainstorming idea about, you know, like, what what if we do this? And then Hallie's sitting right there. So she, she it's letting her, she's thinking about it. And then she gets to say to you, you know, Adam, I had a thought about that idea you have. And here's what I'm a little concerned about. Might we, might you be interested in thinking about it this way? Or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And and what Ask First says is that that's the step, frankly, that a lot of leaders miss. Mm -hmm. They're missing bringing the people they painstakingly hire in the first place. How about bringing them into the planning process sooner so that they could give you the benefit of what's in their brains. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Adam, Adam, what I see around the world is that staff is in general, not feeling leveraged or, or fully utilized right. for what they know. They're transactional. They're doing their job description by God. But how about let's ask them, yeah. what is their opinion about this? I mean, like, one just one small example from the book um a well-known ceo in new york city her executive assistant is one of the best in the business and they were redesigning her office they brought in architects and crew to totally redesign the ceo's office and so they moved to other space while they were doing the build the the assistant kept asking for a hard hat tour to to see the plans to you know be involved in that process because she could look at it from the CEO's point of view and she got that hard hat tour but not until she had to ask many times until it was late in the process and she walks in and she realized immediately they did not put in a dedicated coat closet for this female CEO that they had put the coat closet way back in the in the public restroom and so now she called the shot. She raised her hand, said what the problem was. CEO completely agreed. And, and now they had to spend a lot of money on change fees and construction fees. Like that is such an easy fix. Yeah. But of course, somebody, Adam, said, 
well, she's just the assistant. What will she know? What, what, why should we involve her? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So a leader who has the, the insight to say, you know what? She's asking for the hard hat tour. Give her the God. Give her yeah. the, the hard hat <laughs> tour. Yeah. I have a question for you um, and, and how you would handle this. And I know your book outlines some of this, the, this, but um, I don't know if it covers this particular question. You have a situation where you are going to be letting somebody go. Um, but at the same time, you can't let them know that you're going to be letting them go because it could have a very um, dramatic impact on the organization. It's always a tough one for either us internally or mm-hmm. other CEOs and either other assistants that are in there. Like, how do you how do you best handle that situation um, for for everybody? You're right. It's a really tough one, and it's interesting, <laughs> it's, Adam. It's, you'll be interested in knowing. I got a, a LinkedIn message just the other day saying that the recruiter told her as the candidate that they were conducting a very confidential search for the, a replacement assistant. And that the current assistant didn't know. And the woman writing to me was feeling badly. She was like, Bonnie, I just want to tell the recruiter, I don't want to be considered because I don't like how they're treating the current assistant. And what I said to her is there's a lot you don't know about the situation. Mm -hmm. And in her case, it was a not-for-profit. And I, my comment was, I've been in not-for-profits. Nonprofits are run very lean and to, to disrupt the organization like that could be really detrimental and could really cause serious harm, just as you're talking about. I think it is absolutely tricky. I don't deal with it directly in the book, but my my advice would be to get um, a, a safe third party to be conducting the search, you know, to do, you know, a, a, an incognito email address Unfortunately, you know, rumors fly mm-hmm. and, and assist, if it's an assistant, assistants get the vibe, you know, you catch a vibe if things aren't going very yeah. well. Yeah. So sometimes it would be if you, th- I don't think we can make the mistake of thinking that assistants have no idea. Yeah. Some people are caught, you know, like blindsided. Like I had no idea. Most people though, have an idea that that things are not going well. And they also, when it finally happens, if it's done in a humane, respectful way, because there are all kinds of ways to let people sure. go. Mm-hmm. And email and text messaging is not one of them. <laughs> or not. Uh, it's about a conversation to say it's not working out. Olympia Dukago used to say, every job ends sometime. So let it so when that finally does happen and it's done in a humane way, just a human way, mm-hmm. then very often the person being fired is relieved. Yeah. I'm relieved. And especially if HR could give them some assistance, like yeah. the people being laid off right this minute at all the tech companies, we've heard mm-hmm. about all these, these layoffs that are happening. My hope is that there's some assistance being given because there's this massive group of people who are now looking for new work and they are worried and concerned. So I I think the more the companies can do to just treat it as another human being, that these are not just widgets that you're, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we painstakingly hire people to fill roles. And sometimes it's no longer a fit for many, many, many reasons. And so it's, it's about 
just being treating that person the way you would want to be treated. I, I, I hope yeah, that answers it somewhat. Yeah, it does. We yeah. had a situation where we had an assistant um, that we uh, we sat down and said, how do you want to handle this? And we actually sat her down, Hallie did, and just basically said, look, this isn't working for us in many different ways. It was a very you know humane conversation and said, we're going to start looking and I think you should start looking. And if you find somebody before we do, then we understand that. And as soon as we find somebody, we understand we're going to let you know with a little bit more of two week notice, but we're giving you this kind of notice. And I think they actually found the job faster than we did. Um, yeah, it's going to be 30 days or something. Days, yeah. They found the job and were able to do it. But I think because Holly and I battled that back and forth, like, how do you want, how do you actually handle that? Right. And because I, I try to be as transparent as possible knowing that there's always some extenuating circumstances where it's not possible to be, but my initial inclination right. is always transparency as a default as much as possible. I think that's the move and, and you're respected for it. And the word goes around, doesn't it? The word I, in my book, I do have a chapter called hiring and firing though. And I have heard so many stories of the kind of firings that you know, it happened, no notice that it happens, you know, calling into HR in the morning and then security walks the person to their desk and, you know, watched as they pack it up and you, they feel like a criminal and it's traumatizing. And, you know, I'm a person and I was fired once in my career. I don't know if either of you I was. Ever, yes, were I was. you, Hallie? No, you weren't. Well, Adam and, I, Adam and I were, and Adam, you'll never forget it, right? I know, I know, I don't ever forget. I tell that story actually quite often. <laughs> I mean, you never forget being fired, and it's the way that it happens that you also remember. Mm. You remember if it was done like you're like you're nobody, or if you're treated humanely. I have one more question, Hallie, and then you, I know you've got a, questions you want to ask. Um, you talk about <laughs> it's been the, a great conversation though. <laughs> you, you, you talk about the, the um, you know, obviously from the pandemic and the new kind of workforce rules or issues and challenges, you shed some light into that. Yeah. I mean, wow. We yeah. have quite a situation on our hands. One of the, and, and I don't know your education, Adam, but in general, in business schools, they're not teaching future leaders how to manage people. So the data is that as of 2021, the average age that a leader gets their very first training in managing people is age 46. Wow. So, that, so that's an astonishing number, mm -hmm. meaning you don't have to be a math genius to figure out that most leaders are out of school more than 20 years before they get their very first training in that. And so if that was true before the pandemic where leaders were not necessarily trained in how they should lead others and they're not teaching it in business school, they certainly do, were caught off guard and are even more out of a fish out of water in the current situation with like nobody prepared leaders for, for their employees to be, you know, sometimes in the office and sometimes working at home. And how do you deal with all these laptop computers all over the place? You know, leaders are telling me they're scared to death about hacking and cybersecurity. And you've got, mm -hmm. the workforce has never been so fragmented as it is right now. And what I see is it's putting the burden on leaders 
like you and HR. And HR was burdened, overburdened before the pandemic. And what I see is they're drowning. They're drowning in in this effort to uh, create something very new, very fast. And, you know, for a while in the last couple of years, people had whiplash, like we're going in, we're only going about three days a week. We're not, we're, you know, stop, start, stop, start. You can imagine, you know, what it was like. And it was very hard on the leaders. They, they shared with me that it is hard for them. What I see, what I'm predicting and what I share in the book is that I believe in companies large and small, HR and leaders are going to have to take a fresh look at how the the team is structured. That if you're going to have all these administrative professionals working from home, for example, or in a hybrid way, there needs to be somebody wrangling that group of people. And so that has created a need for a director of administration or a a chief of staff where one didn't exist before. Mm. It's creating... Um, also a need for HR to share some responsibilities, things that assistants happen to be really great at, for example, like onboarding, training, interviewing, not only new assistants, but potential executives at the company, um, disaster planning. I mean, my goodness, there's nobody I meet who would say that, oh, we're done. We're never going to have another social health crisis. We're never going to have terrorism again. We're never going to have a big, you know, extreme weather event. Most assistants will say to me, Adam, that the disaster plans in their companies could definitely be improved. So my my message is to leadership, HR and leaders, is to tap and leverage the people who are already on the staff because those people may be able to have a job description that gets revised. What is your um, opinion on hybrid in office or at home? You know, the irony is that before the pandemic, the conversation happened among assistants. The assistants knew pre-pandemic that that an ideal working situation would be a couple of days in the office and the rest at home, a two, three combination or a three, two. Mm. And the conversation always was our leaders will never go for that. Or, you know, the the assistants who were envied were the ones whose leaders were permitting them to work in such a way. What I see is that it's, it's here to stay, that remote and hybrid work is here to stay. What I'm worried about is proximity bias. I'm worried that already what's emerging is that there it's a human thing is that we seem to people have an advantage when they are in the office with other people in the same space, an advantage over the people who are choosing to stay at home. Now, as a group, the data shows that women still do nine hours more of housework a week. So it's no surprise that women in general are liking working from home. Like, yay, I get to pick up the kids and I get to, and I know I'm stereotyping here, but that's what the data is showing that, you know, they, I hear they love being able to do housework and get their work done and they're super productive, blah, blah, blah. The reality is more men are choosing to go back into the office. Mm 
mm-hmm. versus the number of women who are. And so my concern is the invisibility factor. Mm-hmm. I'm worried that if women are at home choosing to be there and endorsed by the company and being super productive, if they choose not to be on webcam or they choose not to speak at meetings, then if you're not seen or heard, then you're then how are how are people who choose to stay at home and not be intentional about being present? Mm-hmm. How are they going to prove their worth? in in a powerful way. So I, I think the jury's out on this. I don't, I think hybrid and remote are here to stay for mm-hmm. sure. I do think some companies are really right. I mean, I think Disney execs have a point about creativity is great in person. But when you have talented people, we need to, what the big message from the pandemic is that every, it's not one size fits all, that everybody's mm-hmm. different. So that everyone's going to have different needs. It's about, to me, job description equals money. And it's about, are is any given person doing the job you need them to do? And that might have changed in the pandemic. And if so, that might mean that person can't be at the company any longer. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it, I'm not in favor of these blanket policies that don't take into consideration uh, certain people's unique needs. Now that said, do some people take advantage of of this situation? The truth is yes. So again, it puts the burden on leaders and HR to set really clear expectations and to to be to hold people accountable to what they're agreeing to. And again, because of the lack of education for leaders and HR, that's sketchy. That's not the same. Not everybody's great at giving feedback. Not everybody is, not every leader is great at at, um, holding others accountable. What do you think? Uh, I I think you answered that very uh, well. I think we were a remote company before COVID because we are an organization that's in, I don't know, um, 37, 38 states. And we've had a longtime employee that's been with us for 10 years that has been working remotely for a long period of time. Um, So for us, it was actually easy, but I'll I'll say one thing. It's easy for that organization. I run another organization that it's easy. Everyone has to be together. And, and it's, it's more of like the construction. It's more of the, that would be much hard. It's much harder to do that company on zoom than it is to everyone meets when we're all like right now I'm in the office two days a week, right. And three days I'm not. And that office, like those, the time I'm in the office is meeting with that company that needs to be more in-person. It gets better. So I, I think you, the answer is you have to figure out what the workflow is for you and your company, what works for you, and then make sure that you're backfilling that with the, the employees or the leaders that are sharing that same philosophy, whichever way you decide to go. And may I ask you, did you, was that a, ever a conversation with the people who, you know, you were going to go into the office? Was that a consensus? Was that it's not that everything has to be democratic, but did you involve your team in like, you know, this is what I'm thinking. We need to be together in person. What are, what is your reaction to that? Like to involve them in that process. Was that a part of it? I think for that company, it's, it's interesting that you say it's men because it was majority of men in this company and they all naturally wanted to come back to the office. 
And I, I was going to say, yes. they, they they really decided. Yes. It wasn't they, even Adam. They're like, when is Adam coming back in here? So it's like, I'm like the outlier now. That's there. Interesting. So, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Now, was there any fallout? Was there anybody who ended up having to leave the company because they didn't want to do that? I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's I mean, the I have a chapter literally called sex in my book because it's about gender in the workplace and the differences between how women experience the workplace and versus men. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a messy subject, but I had to take it on, Adam, uh, because it's so clear to me that the differences are vast and it was very important to to highlight the double standards that exist, biases that exist, and uh, and then let the chips fall where they may. You know, it's about awareness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, you know, what's interesting is, you know, Hallie and I can um, get along really well, text or mostly an email. We don't really text that much or actually talk on the phone. We email a lot. However, I will tell you that her and I are way more effective when we're in person. So like we schedule our times, like we meet Mondays and Wednesdays, we do stuff together. And I can tell you that we're we, sure we can, we can be 90% effective, but we're, we're, at least I feel this way, right? Like we are much more effective and Hallie's that same way. She likes to come to the office a couple of days a week. I also like to get a pulse feel of things um, that you can't, it's hard to do over zoom. Um, if you don't, if you have that opportunity So go ahead, Hallie, sorry, I hijacked the questions. No, I, I love listening to this dialogue. I think it's, I think it's really um, fascinating because of course my perspective is coming from more of that staff perspective. So, you know, hearing, um, mm. Of course, your perspective, but Adams as well, kind of chiming in from the leader perspective is is awesome. Um, I only had a couple of other questions that this one's a kind of random, but I heard uh, this is very anecdotal, but I'm wondering if any of your research has shown this that in that in the past, usually the CFO was really uh, you know, kind of that prominent CFO or COO, kind of that prominent second, second in command, second in charge. As, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm talking about assistants and chiefs of staff, but the CFO. And I've heard that it's really becoming either um, HR executives or chief people officers who are actually becoming the more prominent kind of second in control or, or being. I just read that article last did week. You? Okay. Yeah, I, I did. And saying that, that- it's now HR and the chief people officers that are making the move to CEO. Yes, that's what I heard too. And more and more articles, and Adam, you've probably read them too, about the people skills. And yeah. the, it's all about the relationship right. and that are and that are being built in the workplace that is going to define the future. And I I think that is correct. Mm-hmm. Um it's not that the money is not of primary importance, but I think what the pandemic showed us all with the great resignation is that money can't solve everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I really think is that we have to do a better job at teaching all leaders how to be tuned in to what, what people need in the workplace, yeah. really. Um, one final question for you. What is the ultimate workplace? The ultimate workplace, in my view, or as close as we can get, is one where the staff feels respected and that they belong, that the, that they are respected for their unique contributions. They're treated as an individual. They are paid fairly. 
that at market value and that they're that the subject of money is a transparent one at companies and the cause of very little stress because people feel valued mm-hmm. and part of how you feel valued is with your paycheck and then a, an ultimate workplace is also one where the staff feels supported by their leadership to keep growing and learning and sometimes that means getting an annual training budget to attend training and it can be shown it can be manifested in a variety of ways mm-hmm. but the the whole notion that people are hired and they are at a certain point in their careers but that they need to keep their saws sharp and that there's a desire everyone every level in an organization to keep learning and growing and honestly there's nothing more powerful for a staffer to feel is that my leader believes in me enough that they're investing in me. They're going to, you know, they're going to invest in my time off to go take a class and I'm going to make my case. And, um, you know, and on top of all of that, staff feels that they have, have been given very clear expectations because perhaps the two of you have heard this, Staff around the world, one of their biggest complaints to me is that the job description that they're doing bears very little resemblance to the one that they were hired to do. Mm -hmm. I can see your nodding head. So yeah, this is a hundred percent true. So if there's anything leaders are going to take away from this session, please take a fresh look at everyone's job description to make sure they're actually accurate and detailed and not I mean, I'm horrified when assistants will say, yeah, my job description is from 15 years ago, hasn't been updated in 15 years. Yeah. And that, my friends, is a true story. Yeah. So it's that those are some of the elements of an ultimate workplace. Is that consistent with what you're hearing? Yeah. Yes. It, it, I love that. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Awesome. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited that your book is officially going to be out and in other people's hands um, in the next day. And um, congratulations on such a such a great um, piece of work. And um, thank you, Hallie. Thank you. It's it's a, it's a labor of love, and I hope you can tell this is so much more than about selling books. This is I'm deeply concerned about the future of our workplace unless we get a handle on some of these issues. And I, I just want to thank you, Adam, for you know being such a champion of strong partnerships and you know, allowing your partnership with Hallie to be revealed to the world so others can emulate it. That's that's a great thing and, and really empowering. So thank you for your support of, of the community in the world and of, of me and the book. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. It's great. Thank you.